I journey. Our really, really good friend, Pastor Sam Summers, has gone home to be with Jesus. And uh, just a week ago from today, it was the seventh late in the afternoon, Sam's precious wife, Connie, took him to the ER here in Bozeman where they discovered that he was bleeding on his brain. They, not very long later, made the decision to fly Sam to Billings, which they did. Uh, surgeons at the Billings Clinic met him and uh, did emergency surgery in an attempt to relieve the pressure that bleeding was causing on Sam's brain. And sadly, Sam just didn't wake up. He just didn't wake up. He crossed from this life into eternity a little after 5 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, the 9th. And on one hand, uh, I'm really sorry if this is the first time you're hearing about Sam's passing. On the other hand, I'm really, really glad that you're with your journey family as you hear this tragic, sad news. Uh, some of you know this, that Sam has been one of my pastors, one of my ministry mentors, and really one of my ministry heroes since I was, get this, 13 years old. Since I was 13 years old. My family started attending Faith Evangelical Church in Billings, which is Journey's grandmother church, which is where Sam pastored for, get this, more than a quarter century he pastored there. So for me, uh, Sam's been kind of like another dad to me for a very, very, very long time. And uh, with all of those years of impact on my life and on my family's life, would you just imagine with me in 2008 uh, the elation in me when I got to invite Sam and Connie to come to Bozeman, and, and we talked about this. As we hired Sam, he and I literally talked about this. Hey, Sam, would you come to Bozeman and would you finish your ministry run with us on the staff at Journey? And when we talked about it, we were thinking and we were obviously hoping that it would have been for a whole lot longer than the almost five years we got the privilege of sharing together. And... Uh, Everybody loves Sam. Everybody loves Sam. And it didn't matter if you knew him for 26 years or if you just met him out in the lobby on your very first ever visit to Journey. He has this way, doesn't he, about him that just communicates that you're loved, that you're special, that you're the only person in the world who matters to him. It was this magical thing that he had. And God used Sam immensely, didn't he? in hundreds and thousands and even tens of thousands of lives over the course of his 62 years of life and ministry. Uh, in his words, Sam was the master of the word picture, isn't he? Just the master of the word picture. Uh, and what's one of his favorite expressions was, that person cuts quite a swath. You even heard me pray it earlier. And Sam cut quite a swath with and for Jesus Christ, like what a kingdom of God swath that Sam cut. I have two words uh, that have been helpful to me. They might be helpful to you, these words that just keep playing over and over and over again through my heart and head in these days. The first one is grief, and the second one is hope. Grief and hope, and grief is pretty obvious, isn't it? We're grieving. I lost a tremendous mentor, friend, ministry partner, ministry, hero. That hurts so, so deeply. And anyone else who knows Sam, you're hurting just as deeply 
as I am, and I just want to say it's real appropriate for you to grieve. It's real appropriate for you to grieve. Don't just shrug it off. Don't just stuff it. Don't just man up or woman up or whatever. Like walk into your grief. Walk into it. Sit in your grief. I am. Sam's family is. Our staff around here is. Just one thing I'm doing to sort of sit in my grief. The other night, it was real late. No one else was around this place. I was glad it was dark and lonely in here. And I just let myself into Sam's office for the first time since he was gone. And I just set myself down in his chair, and I sat in his desk, and I just bawled my eyes out. I just had a little visit with God and a little visit with Sam right there at his desk. And that's the kind of thing that we all need to give yourself time and space to sit in your grief. And so we're grieving. And at the same time, there's incredible hope. We're people of hope. And I keep coming back to this reality again and again and again. The Lord kept running this scripture across the screen of my mind all week long this week. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. This is Easter morning, okay? Easter morning, very early Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They think they're going to embalm Jesus. And they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of Jesus. And as they stood there, puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. These are angelic beings. And the women were terrified, bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. So what we know is that Jesus Christ conquered sin, death, hell, the grave, and all of that. He rose from the dead on Easter morning. Jesus Christ is alive and well today. You will never find Jesus among the dead. He is among, well among the living. And a long, long time ago, Sam Summers took Jesus up on his offer of new life. And because Sam trusted Christ, understand this, right now, Sam is sharing in the very resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Sam is not among the dead either. He is with Jesus, well with Jesus, well among the living. Which means that the fear and the sting of death and judgment is taken away. Because Jesus is risen and Sam trusted Jesus with his life and he trusted Jesus with his eternity. So that's us in these days. We're walking in this tension, grief and hope and it sort of swings like this from moment to moment doesn't it and journey we are a family and we've lost a very very important member of our family and that means that we're going to need each other a whole lot more now than we ever needed each other before we'll have to be very very careful to listen very very carefully to each other in these days we'll need to love each other very very well right now and there'll be times where we'll just lose it, right? I'll just lose it, you'll just lose it, we'll all just lose it, and that's okay. That's quite okay. Because the tears and the crying and the sadness and the pain are all part of our grieving, all part of us feeling the loss of our dear, dear friend, Sam. Three things that I want you to know and do, if you would, 
please. We're going to celebrate Sam's life right here in this room, 11 a.m. on Thursday, the 18th. And I hope, Sam's family, all hopes that you will be here to celebrate with them Sam's incredible life and the gospel impact that he had on so many people's lives. Like, turn out and, you know, we'll have people hanging out the doors and that'll be just fine. Number two, there, there is absolutely a part for you to play in facilitating uh, Sam's celebration and beyond lots of you I know are raising your hand saying, I want to help, what, what can I do? And so would you just use the card that's in the chair pocket in front of you, uh, write your name, email, and phone number on there would be best, cell phone number would be best because you're never home. So give us your cell phone number if you would and uh, one of our team members will be in touch with you, especially early this week if it's around Sam's celebration. It'll be a little later if it's sort of an ongoing thing. And so stay tuned for that. You can give those cards to ushers or silo on your way out. And third thing, and, and uh, this one's immediate, doesn't require any direction from anybody, but would you just pray, please? You pray especially for Connie. Uh, Sam and Connie were married for 40 years. 40 years. They started dating when they were 15 years old, which is, a, I mean, like, what a run they had together. Like, what a run they had. So pray for Connie, and would you please pray also for their kids. Sam and Connie have these four wonderful daughters. Three of them are married. Julie's married to Alex, and Carrie's married to David, and Amy's not married, and Jenny's married to Zach. And There's grandkids, nine grandkids. Sam and Connie have nine grandkids, Evan and Ellie and Ava and Bella and Bethany and Liam and Jackson, Clive and little Eliza. Sam and Connie's nine grandkids. Would you just lift them up, hold them up, in prayer as they begin to metabolize uh, losing Sam. Pray that God's grace would be abundant on them, his comfort, his tenderness, peace, you know, all of that, if you would, please. Bob's gonna bring us the word this morning, and before we do that, would you just grab the hand of a person next to you? If you're not comfortable grabbing someone's hand, you can take a pass on this deal, but if you are comfortable, grab a hand and let's pray together. Oh God, thank you so, so much for meeting us in our place of greatest need. Thank you so much that we can just draw up next to you and we can just sit with you and that you can just whisper your life and your truth and your hope into our ears, especially in days and moments when we need it especially in days like these. Jesus, I pray for Sam and Connie's entire family, Jesus, that you would just surround them, hedge around them. They would actually feel carried along by your spirit and that they would sense this special, special measure of your grace on their lives in these days, God that you would fill them up even to overflowing as only you can. And God, that you would use their extended church family to be your hands and feet in their lives. That we would be couriers of your hope, couriers of your grace to them. We love you, Jesus. You are the best. And it's you alone we worship. In Jesus' name we pray all of this and everyone agreed together and said,
This is the story of Joseph. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other sons, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out on the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father, he kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, go and see if all is well with your brothers and the flocks and bring word back to me. His brothers saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said. Come, now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he, he tried to rescue him. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here, here in the wilderness, but, but don't lay a hand on him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and threw him into the cistern. As they sat down to their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan coming from Gilead on their way to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. They pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt and sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The Lord was with Joseph so that he, he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went to the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were there. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. She kept a cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. 
Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed upon the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. He had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were going on a single stalk. And then after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today, I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream was a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us and a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation to his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh told Joseph his dreams. The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, said Joseph. The seven good cows and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward and the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind, they are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This should, food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom the spirit of God is? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. When Brian grabbed me this week and asked me if I would uh, be able to step in and preach a short sermonette on this topic of kingdom in light of all the circumstances. Uh, I'll, I'll be really honest, the first thing that happened is I just got a pit in my stomach because I began to think, how am I going to be able to stand up in front of people as we think and even reflect on the life of Sam and do anything other than just be a puddle of tears? But as I thought about this idea of kingdom and this idea of building God's kingdom, I just thought, this is Sam. This is who he is. This is who he was. This is what his life was about. And as I've just tried to personally process the life of my friend Sam, the scripture that has been so helpful for me was what was up on the screen during that time of reflection. And I just want to take us back to there really briefly. The writer of Hebrews says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The thing that has been most helpful for me this week was just to press in to the life of Sam and remember the things about him. Remember the things that he did in my life, the ways that he encouraged me, the way that he built my faith. And then the writer says here, whatever those things are that he did in your life, imitate those things. Whatever Sam meant to you, whatever it is that he built into your life, my friends, if you want to honor him, spend the rest of your life doing those things in the lives of every person around you, every person you lay eyes on. Do to them what Sam did with you and consider the outcome of his way of life. As I've been reflecting on Sam, I just think I want to finish the way that Sam finished. He finished well. This is a man who died with his boots on building the kingdom till his last breath. And I was just thinking if Sam could be here and he could exhort us in any way, what would he say? I don't know if I know exactly what Sam would say, but I'm pretty sure I know how he would say it. Sam wouldn't yell. He wouldn't raise his voice with us. If you know Sam, you know what I'm talking about. He wouldn't poke his finger in your chest, but he would probably put his hands on your shoulders. He'd probably put his arm around you and he would say, friend, live for things that last. Live for things that are going to last for eternity. That's what he did his whole life. We got to watch him do that. Sam knew that people are going to last forever. Invest in people deeply. Sam knew that God's kingdom is going to last forever. Invest deeply in his kingdom the kingdom of God, that was Sam's way of life. And if you were here last week, you know that Brian started a series around here that we're calling Covenant and Kingdom. 
And I want to just highlight those two ideas before we jump off, remind you of some of the things that Brian shared last week. When we talk about covenant, when you hear that word in this series, the word we want you to think is relationship. God has done everything to provide a, rela- a way for you to have a relationship with him that's going to last forever. This covenant idea is that God invites us into his family. But when God invites us into his family, he also invites us into his family business. And the family business is what we're talking about when we're talking about kingdom responsibility. That God wants us to be a part of what he is doing in the world. Redeeming the world back to him, bringing other people into a relationship with him. Another way to say it is this. Covenant is about us knowing God. Not just knowing about God, not just knowing some facts about God, but that we would know him. That our lives would be marked by his presence. That there would be an intimacy that we experience with God. That our lives would be characterized by us hearing from him and responding to his voice in our life. That's the idea of covenant. We know God. The idea of kingdom is that we make him known to the world. Because that's what God is about. He wants to reveal himself to the world. And he wants to use us as his kids to do that. We can take part in that with him. And friends, if you're here today and you have that kind of relationship, that covenant relationship with God, you can be assured that God wants to use you in his kingdom purposes. He wants to use you to make him known to the world. But that leads us to our big idea that I want us to reflect on today. God wants to do something through you, but before God can do something through you, he must first do something in you. If we're going to make a kingdom impact, the first thing that has to be true in our life is we've got to be crystal clear on who is our king. Who is it that we are bowed down to? Who is my life submitted to? Because this idea of kingdom responsibility won't make any sense to us. And we won't get any traction toward that if we don't have it settled once and for all. Who is the king of my life? Who is on the throne of my life? God and God alone needs to be king of our life. But friends, here's the problem that every single one of us in this room is going to run into. We want to be our own king. We want to be captain of our own boat. Frankly, we want to be the center of the universe. And friends, it starts that way for us from the very beginning. We are born that way. I think about the times that I came home from work and I was watching what my kids were doing, just public display that they thought they were the center of the universe. And I was like, what is my wife teaching them while I'm gone? She wasn't teaching them anything. That's That's how we come into this world. And frankly, it's kind of hard to shed that throughout our life. That's true of us as well, no matter how old you are. We always have this gravitational pull to be the center of the universe. I have a good friend of mine, and there are times in my life when it becomes very apparent that I'm acting in ways that reflect that I think I'm the middle of the universe. And he very humorously looks at me and says, here's Bob, here's the world. But isn't that how we want it to be? Sometimes we want to be the center of the universe. When we think about the throne of our life, we feel very comfortable sitting in the throne. We like to be in control. 
In fact, if we're sitting here, sometimes we even want a remote control so that we can start controlling other people's lives, not just our own. Get some cup holders. We're very comfortable here. Now, I'm not saying that we don't want God in our life. We want God somewhere around our life because we might need him for something, you know, to help us with something. And sometimes I get the picture that that's how people's view of God is. I want to control my own life, and I'll kind of call you up like a butler when I need you for something. Well, friends, if we are going to live out this idea of kingdom responsibility, we have got to move off the throne of our life, and God needs to move from the periphery of our life, and he needs to move to the direct center of our life if God's going to use us in his kingdom purposes. And there's hope, friends, because God is committed to helping us in this process. God is going to do whatever it takes to bring us to the place, ultimately in our life, where he is the king. He is the one that we'll bow down to. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess one day. It's just a matter of whether we're going to submit to that process in God's life, in our life, that God wants to do. We're going to look at the story of Joseph. You heard Sam read it earlier. In the life of Joseph, God gives us a front row seat into his life. And we get to see this process taking place in his life. And we just think if, if there ever was a life that was a roller coaster, it was the life of Joseph. He starts out at the beginning. He's the favored son, loved the most. And this, this gets him into trouble because if you're the favored son, you don't want to make it so obvious to your other brothers that you're the favorite son. But we've all experienced some level of sibling rivalry, and it seemed like that was the same in his family. But, you know, probably in our context, most of the time, you just give your little brother a wedgie and you send him on his way. <laughs> no, what, he gets sold to be a slave in Egypt. Talk about a plummet in terms of your fortunes. But here's what we know from the scriptures, that God was with him. And we know that this vision that God was going to do something through Joseph hasn't gone away. But before God can do something through Joseph, he's got to do something in him. But we know that God was there because he tells us so. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Not, not prospered in the sense that he got wealthy, but prospered in the sense that God's grace was going out ahead of him. God's hand was on his life. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Everyone, it was just so obvious, even in this place that wouldn't be what Joseph would have chosen for his life, it was so obvious to everyone around that the hand of God was on him. But Potiphar's wife, she noticed something about Joseph a little bit more than just the fact that God's hand was on him. She noticed that this was a handsome young man, and she wanted him, and she threw herself at him. But Joseph, he wants to honor God with his life. And he says, who am I to do such a wicked thing and bring dishonor to my God? Who am I to do that and sin against him? And as he tries to rebuff her, it leads to a false accusation 
And then we, he finds himself once again in prison. But we hear, again, God is still at work in Joseph's life. Even in the difficult things, God is there and at work. This is what the scripture says. It says, Joseph, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. God was there working in his life. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And now if we just follow the story out like Sam did, we see that in just a couple more chapters, Joseph finds himself, except for Pharaoh, the most powerful person in Egypt. What a, what a roller coaster ride of life. And what, what would you think if you were in Joseph's shoes? Like, God, what are you doing in my life? It would have been really tempting for Joseph in some of those seasons of life to feel like God has abandoned me. But the text makes it so clear that even in those times, what would be the greatest of despair, the greatest of discouragement, God was there with him because God had a plan for Joseph. God was shaping his life. That vision that he'd given Joseph as a young man was still yet to be fulfilled. But before God could do that great thing through Joseph, he still had to work on some things in Joseph. Let's think just a little bit. What is it that changed in Joseph's life from this 17-year-old boy taunting his brothers to a 30-something-year-old man leading Egypt? What is it that transpired there? Because at 17, it's so obvious to see that this was someone like a lot of us were at 17. We thought that we were the center of the universe. Here's Joseph. Here's the world. That's where he was. And he thought his brothers were going to bow down to him. Well, let's take that snapshot and let's fast forward and look at a snapshot at the very end of this story in Genesis chapter 50. Now remember at this time, Joseph has become the, one of the most powerful men in the known world at that time. Because God used him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and because of the years of surplus and now the years of famine, he controls the food supply for everyone around there. He decides who lives and who dies. To the people in that part of the world, he is God. He is the center of the universe. But we see because of what God has done in the life of Joseph, he is now a man of humility. He is a man in deep surrender to God, submission to God, and as we're gonna see here, a man of great forgiveness. Because all those people that needed food, you know who that included? It included his brothers. Finally, the chance for the little brother to get revenge. He's got them by the throat and he can squeeze their throat and choke out their life if he wants to. But here's the man that we see that when his brothers come to him in chapter 50. It says his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Does that sound a little bit familiar to that vision that God had given Joseph as a 17-year-old young man? 
brothers bowing down to him. But the problem was at age 17, Joseph wasn't the person that he needed to be, but now he is, and this is what Joseph says. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There was something that God needed to do in Joseph to bring him to the place where he could see God's perspective from the big picture. There was things that God wanted to do through Joseph and ways that he was gonna use him mightily from this point on, but there were things that he had to do in him. Joseph came to the place where he asked the rhetorical question, am I in the place of God? And the resounding answer to that question from Joseph's perspective is no, absolutely not. I am not in the place of God. God and God alone sits on the throne of my life and sits on the throne of heaven. Through that years, through that up and down, there was a process that went on in Joseph's life where Joseph came out of the throne of his life and he knelt down and worshiped and God was firmly at the center of his life. That was Joseph's story. But, but what about you? What about me? If we were to just sit back and look at our life and just be completely honest, who's on the throne of our life, really? Who's at the center of our universe, really? If we took the time to just look across the landscape of our life and think about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we do with relationships, what do we give our energy and our thoughts to, would that be a reflective of someone who is surrendered to the king and living out their kingdom responsibility? Or would it be reflective of someone who sees themselves as the king and wants to build their own kingdom? Friends, I don't know what it is that God wants to do through your life, but I know that he does. But I can also say just as confidently that before God can do great things through your life, he's got to do some very deep things in your life. This idea of kingdom responsibility is not gonna make sense unless God and God alone is truly the king of your life. And if I could just boldly ask you to do an assignment this week, this is what I would ask you to do. Sometime throughout this week and, and preferably even multiple times throughout this week, would you just take some time in your home and find a chair? It doesn't have to be a chair that looks like a beautiful throne like this, but just find a chair that represents the throne. And I want you to just take some time and I want you to just sit there. And I want you to quiet your soul, quiet your heart, and look for an opportunity to listen from God. And this is the question I want you to ask him. I want you to ask him the same question that Joseph asked. Am I in the place of God? And now Joseph asked that question rhetorically. I want you to ask it literally. God, is there any way in my life, the way that I'm living my life, the things that I'm giving my life to, am I on the throne of my life? Am I in the place of God? And friends, I believe that if you know him, God wants to surface those things in your life. And as you sit in that chair, I would encourage you to just take a pen and a paper and begin to write those things down. What is it that God brings to your mind? What are the things that are keeping you on the throne of your life and God off of the throne of your life? 
And as God begins to surface those things in you, this is what I want you to do in your heart and your mind and physically with your chair. Get off of the chair. Get down on your knees. And one by one, whatever those things are that God brought to your mind, would you repent of those things? Would you turn from those things? Because God's gonna ask you to do some things. He's gonna ask you to stop doing some things, whatever they are. Would you, in a place of humility and submission and surrender, would you put God squarely on the throne of your life? Let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge that you and you alone are king. God, we, I just want to say, God, that I know that the sooner I figure that out, the better off I'm going to be. The more useful I'm going to be to you. God, for me and for my friends, God, would you show us the things in our life that are keeping us on the throne and keeping you off of the throne. God, we want to be surrendered to you. God, I'm so thankful that you invite us into a covenant relationship. I'm so thankful that you're committed to this process of helping us order our life in a way that makes you the king. God, we love you, and we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.